Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Whenever political discussion, particularly on the left, turns to what policy will really work to improve the lives of the middle class, invariably there is talk about the Scandinavian models. Countries like Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, and Finland are constantly in the top tier in discussions of education, abundance of jobs, health care, and a social safety net that's woven into those nations' DNA. But this was not always so. Many of these countries had to work hard to achieve this, and in some cases they did it from polarization that was as bad, if not worse, than the current state of America. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, George Lakey. George Lakey recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was the Eugene M. Lang Visiting Professor for Issues and Social Change, and he managed the Global Nonviolent Action Database Research Project. He's also held teaching posts at Haverford College and the University of Pennsylvania. He's led over 1,500 social change workshops on five continents, and it is my pleasure to welcome George Lakey here to talk about his new book, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. George, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you here. When we look at these Scandinavian countries, is it a mistake to look at them as kind of a monolith, to lump them all together in trying to understand them? There are significant differences among them. For example, um, Iceland has only 320,000 people. And, uh, and uh, Sweden, on the other hand, is head, headed toward 10 million especially because they've accepted so many immigrants over the years. Um, and especially last year during, during all that Syrian flood, you remember, it was mm-hmm. uh, going north, they accepted more immigrants than any other European country. So uh, there, are some, there are some interesting differences in terms of what the natural resources are, including the size of the population, because that's a resource. At least that's the way the Swedes feel about it. It's, hey, let's get immigrants in here because that's a resource for our future economy. Um, and on the other hand, what they do share is a common approach to the economy. And in looking at that common approach, talk a little bit about how they all came to this approach. And was it all at the same time or did it happen over a period of time that allowed one to look at the other and really try and better understand what was going on? The second way, uh, Denmark was the first. Denmark uh, got uh, it's uh, it uh, it really started developing the Nordic model earlier than the others did, and the others were looking on enviously while the labor movement in in Sweden and Norway and and uh, Iceland uh, and the farmers and the fisher folk were all looking at Denmark and saying, whoa, we, we want some of that stuff. <laughs> but, and then uh, Sweden had its breakthrough in 1931. Norway didn't have its breakthrough until 1936. Uh, so, yeah, there were differences. And then, of course, Norway and Denmark were invaded and occupied during World War II by Nazi Germany, and Sweden was not. So then Sweden could go you know, could really leap ahead during those war years uh, because they, they didn't have a, an enemy sitting on them. And, and then Denmark and Norway had to get back to it after the war. So, yeah, there were differences in pacing and how quickly things could move forward in terms of the actual struggle because it did take a tremendous struggle. It was by no means 
you know, inherent in their DNA to be able to operate as well as they do now. They had to struggle to get there. What impact did the war years have? The war years uh, in Norway and and uh, Denmark taught people that they could stand up against very uh, tough odds. Um, I mean, after all, uh, in Norway, there was one soldier per 10 Norwegians. Can you imagine an <laughs> occupation force of that size? Um, and uh, I married a Norwegian, and she was a little girl during that time. So I heard lots of stories from her and her family, her mom and dad, about what that was like. And what they said was it, it really taught them a lot about solidarity because there were there were lines that even Nazi German uh, soldiers and the Gestapo would would decide not to cross because it would give them so much trouble because of the sheer solidarity of the Norwegians. The Norwegians were sticking up for each other. Talk a little bit about the impact that leadership had versus grassroots efforts. Was this top-down or bottom-up the way a lot of this evolved in these countries? Oh, very, very much bottom-up. Yeah. One of the ways they were bottom up was through the co-op movement. They put a lot of of emphasis on producer co-ops as well as consumer co-ops. I suppose in this country we think of co-ops very very much more often like grocery stores and that kind of thing. But over there, in addition to the grocery store kind of co-op, they also hugely emphasized uh, fisher folk getting together and creating an organization and then buying a bigger boat to share, you know, uh, or and starting to do their own processing of fish. Uh, farmers getting together, building a dairy to process their milk and to market their cheese. So way more, um, way more cooperative enterprises. And they, they did that, I think, partly for the sheer uh, benefit, the economic benefit, but also because it helped to build more unity. And in Norway, especially where there were a lot of isolated valleys where people spoke dialects, where they could hardly understand each other. It was really great to have that that unity being built. So that was a a big upsurge from the grassroots. And then the other thing was the folks who were contesting for power with their economic elite. Because the economic elite was really satisfied with the, the... what I think of as the bad old days, um, you know, when there was lots of poverty, those countries were in wretched shape. And of course, a lot of Norwegians and Swedes and Danes came to the U.S. and came to Canada, Icelanders too, uh, to to have a better chance at life because things were so bad in the, their mother countries. Um, so, the, but the people who were left in those countries decided, uh, the majority decided to struggle for change, and they struggled against the economic elite, and finally then won their opportunity. And talk a little bit about the pushback to it, those that were satisfied with the status quo, what their argument was, and how that argument was countered by the other side. Well, one argument was, hey, look, we've been running the economy for longer than you can remember, and uh, and so we obviously know what we're doing because running an economy is a complex thing, and we are the univers- we are university educated, we're the upper crust, we're used to handling money because we've had a lot of it, and uh, so we know about these things, and don't bother your heads about it. We, we know that uh, you don't like poverty, but that's uh, every economic system has a lot of poverty, and then we actually doing quite well 
compared with uh, whatever. And so, uh, so sh- shut up and, <laughs> and and work harder. Shut up and work harder. And uh, that was what they, that was the big pushback. And then when when people didn't shut up and work harder, but continued to struggle, then the troops were called out, and the people were actually fired on, um, and there were people killed uh, in de- in nonviolent demonstrations. They were they were just struck down by bullets. Um, plus the uh, the things you'd expect, like uh, editors of um, of democratic newspapers being uh, you know, hauled off to jail, and you know that that kind of repression, and and of course, or organizers of workers and factories would be fired, and that kind of thing, lesser things as well as the big the heavy duty stuff. Talk about it in terms of taxes and the impact that it had. In, uh, well, one of the things that they decided was that in, in creating this new model was that there are some things that are more rationally paid for through taxing the whole population and then running that service out of a common spot rather than leaving it to the market. Um, in, in Norway, for example, it was the doctors who said to the people as a whole, um, look, it's our professional opinion that we can never practice medicine to our satisfaction, to our professional satisfaction, with a free market approach. Uh, The only way that we can really take care of you folks is if you set up a socialized medicine system because that's the way that we'll be able to really work best. Um, And so that would be one example. So the, the taxes go into the government and then the government pays for the hospitals and um, and the doctors and the, you know the whole deal in fact the the health service in Norway will even pay if you happen to develop a tumor but you live on the other end of the country uh, north of the Arctic Circle let's say where there's you know not very developed hospitals um, and the surgery that you need for your brain surgery um, is available at the other end of the country then the health service flies you you down to the university hospital at the other end of the country so that you can get the best care available. Uh, that's the kind of assumption that they that, that they made, and then they experimented to see, is that indeed true? Bring the money in through the taxes, and then the government pays for the health care, and see what the product is. And do you know what? Not only do they have a superior health care system that, uh, to ours, but these days they're also paying only two-thirds what Americans pay for health care, even though the amount we pay doesn't even cover tens of millions of people in terms of health insurance, um, they get away with paying only two-thirds what we pay uh, uh, because they do it through the taxation system, which is way more efficient than doing it through the market. Tell us a little bit about the vision for all of this, and were there key individuals that that even though this was a grassroots effort, were there key individuals that helped to bring this all about? Oh, yes, sure. Like, like uh, a name that a lot of Americans might know is Gunnar Myrdal, a Swedish economist who did his PhD dissertation on the question, wh- why do people work? Uh, what, what's going on with human nature with regard to work? Is it the case, as the old-fashioned classical economists used to say, that people don't want to work? Human beings don't want to work. They want to just lie around, and so they have to be forced to work by the uh, threat of starvation. 
uh, is that really what's going on? And Myrdal discovered, uh, argued that human nature is actually pro-work, that human beings get enormous satisfaction out of work if the, if the job is designed well. And not only that, that uh, the human beings experience their role as part of larger society. It's a kind of uh, an assertion of citizenry to to actually uh, you know work and work hard and work well. Um, so the Nordic model was built on his theory. He got the Nobel Economics Prize for that. And uh, the Nordic model in all those countries that I studied is built on that assumption that people want to work. The, uh, the state has an obligation to make sure there, there are jobs for everyone. Also has an obligation to make sure that education is available and job training is available for everyone so that they can do their job well. And they've taken it a step further since his day. And now they say, look, if you happen to be a square peg in a round hole, you've been doing a job that's not satisfying, you don't get up in the morning when you need to go to work, then you ought to be finding a job that works for you, that enables you to be highly satisfied so you're happy to go to work. And so uh, we, we encourage you to quit your job and go into a job training program. Go to university. Maybe you've always really uh, secretly uh, thought it would be wonderful to be a lawyer. Okay, so go to law school. You did already finish university. Go to law school. It's free. It's free. Um, get, get the training for law school and then set up as a lawyer. That's fine with us. In fact, it's better from our point of view, the point of view of the whole economy, because Square pegs and square holes actually do produce more. And so the result of this approach is that their economies produce uh, more work per worker. In other words, uh, worker efficiency is greater. More worker productivity happens in those economies than in our economy. And they have more entrepreneurs. They have more startups per capita than the United States does because they support entrepreneurship as well. So it's it's a definitely a win-win. It's a win-win for the indiv- it's a win for the individual because there's more freedom over there to be an an, an economic person, a person participating in the economy, more freedom, but there's also more benefit for the whole economy because the whole economy grows more and is more prosperous as a result. Have there been times that there have been pressures on the economy, that the system in any of these countries hasn't worked as well as anticipated, and how has that played out in those instances? Oh, that's such an interesting point. I did a whole chapter on the romance that happened in Norway and Sweden. I want to call it a romance. A kind of flirtation with Thatcherism. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of Britain in the 80s, and she argued that socialism is a horrible idea and that capitalism is far superior, everything should be turned over to the market, and they uh, started to uh, get attracted to that in Norway and Sweden, even though their own system had been working beautifully. So they uh, accepted they were running into some problems at that point, and that's what that's partly the motivation. So rather than solve the problems in their own terms, they thought, let's bring in some Thatcherism in. So they deregulated the banks. What happened then in the late 80s in Norway and Sweden was that the bankers went wild. 
And uh, of course, in the United States, we wouldn't know anything about that. But anyway, <laughs> they went wild and they uh, did a real estate uh, bubble. And again, like the U.S. did later, and the bubble burst, and the, uh, the both of those economies, Sweden and Norway, rushed toward the precipice. It looked really dire. So in each case, the government had to step in, seized the largest banks, fired the senior management for irresponsibility, uh, made sure the shareholders didn't get a dime because they had also been asleep on the watch. And uh, and after taking over those banks, then over time restored them to solvency and uh, enabled them to be on their own. Except in Norway, the the Norwegian government kept the largest single bank uh, as a governmentally owned bank, it basically saying, um, you know, we just don't even trust you, uh, even though we've put the regulations back on and we're going to own you to make sure that you do the right thing. So, yeah, they ran into serious trouble, and they could have gone into a very serious depression, and and they didn't because of decisive action. And, you know, Barack Obama, during um, his uh, his 2008 candidacy for president, admitted in a news conference that the Swedish solution – to its financial crisis was the correct solution, and he wished that he we could do it here in the U.S. And it certainly paid off for Sweden because they bounced back very quickly as a result of that, whereas, as you know, we still haven't fully bounced back. We still have people out of their homes that lost their homes through through the, uh, the irresponsibility of our bankers. Certainly with respect to Finland and Sweden, both are countries that have global brands that are very much a part of their economies. To what extent are these countries integrated into the global marketplace with respect to both trade and business? And how has that played out for them? And what impact has it had on their internal economies? Oh, that's such a great question because we hear so much about that with regard to the U.S. these days, right? And and uh, even President Obama has said one reason why uh, the working class in the U.S. is suffering is so much is because of technology and globalization. Well, the the countries that I studied in, in um, Scandinavia have always been in the in. It, it, experiencing globalization because they've been always small and they've made their living through exports with Norway. It was fish with Iceland. It was fish. Um, Norway also had lumber, lumber, uh, that it could export. Um, Sweden was dependent on being able to export those Volvos and Saabs and so on, Ikea. (laughs) And so, um, they, yeah, in Denmark, uh, agricultural produce, very dependent on the world market. So the way they've had to cope, and they've been coping successfully for a long time on this, is by taking very good care of their people and making their, making their productivity the highest in the world. Um, so, for example, um, the, the uh, agricultural produce, uh, probably most of your listeners have had a Danish ham once, <laughs> at least, or more. Um, the, the, the cheeses and so on that come out of those countries, the quality of the fish, the quality of their, their uh, cars, safety-oriented and so on, um, they do have so much on a quality basis, and they invest, of course, they have free higher education, free university, free 
uh, engineering school and so on. And that's all geared up not only for the benefit of the individual people, which it is to the benefit of, but it's also geared up to make them highly competitive in the global marketplace. It's made quite a difference, really. Talk a little bit about the political systems in these individual countries, the degree to which they are different and the same. The political systems are very similar to each other uh, among themselves. They all have parliamentary democracies. Um, Iceland doesn't have a monarchy. The other three countries did retain their monarchies, but of course the monarchies don't even play the role that Queen Elizabeth plays in England. They're very, very low, low key. Um, so, um, yeah, so in, in, the, in the way of sort of making decisions, they are very similar to each other. Um, I would say, and, and, uh, and, and highly democratic. In fact, on the international ratings, they come out as being far more democratic than we are. Uh, and they're, they have a high degree of press freedom also than we do, which, which really matters so much in politics. Um, but what what can be misleading for Americans reading about those countries is that American journalists don't quite know how to handle this right wing left wing thing, and so every it's possible to look in every country you know and say well there's a spectrum there's from the right to the left you have this whole spectrum, but the thing is the spectrum in the Scandinavian countries is very different. I talked with. Um, a leading member of the Conservative Party, for example, in Norway, had a long talk with her. She was just fantastic. And one of the things she said was, I wish that President Obama were a politician in my country because he would fit beautifully in the Conservative Party and uh, we would you know, make a big deal out of him. He would probably become a prime minister. He's just a perfect conservative. <laughs> so that's illustrative of how in those countries the spectrum start the right where the right end of the spectrum pretty much starts where Obama's politics are and then goes to the left from there. So it's really a different spectrum and they make the most of that. So they're able to do so much more for the people because the parties of course have lots of differences. They have to work things out. Um, but they, they definitely operate on the basis of a people orientation rather than how can we most benefit the economic elite. What is the nexus between the politics of these countries and the degree to which the social and cultural aspect of those countries get caught up in the politics the way they do here in America? I would say the major uh, way it shows up in the Scandinavian countries, they, they had very little trouble about uh, gay marriage, for example, and gay equality and uh, you know, same-sex uh, uh, marriage and adoption and that kind of thing. They didn't have much trouble with that at all. I would say that the trouble they have had and still do is about uh, immigration because they are so worried that the immigrants may not adopt sufficient amount, especially linguistically sufficient amount of the, of the culture that they have so that that culture can be transmitted. Especially this is true in Iceland, because Iceland has only 320,000 people. Those are the only people in the world who speak Icelandic. And Icelandic language is amazingly close to the old Viking language of a thousand years ago. 
so they feel they feel like some of the tribes do in in uh, Brazil, you know, in the Amazonian in the Amazon uh, rain, rain rainforest. Um, if, when we go, that's it. That's it for our language. That goes for our culture. Now, now so many of the immigrants who come to Iceland uh, speak English. Uh, they may be from Poland or wherever they're from, but they speak English as well. And Icelanders all speak English. So the easy thing would be to say, okay, don't bother to learn Icelandic. It's a hard language. We'll just speak English. That would be fine. But the Icelanders feel a responsibility to their own heritage, to their own legacy. And so they do require the immigrants to learn Icelandic, even though it's very tongue-twisting. And that's true for each of these countries, the Danish language, Swedish language, and Norwegian language, it's all depending on the immigrants being willing to join up and sign up for the, the culture uh, sufficiently so that the culture can continue. And that, and therefore, because there's some people in each of those countries who worry about that, they push back and say, let's not have any more immigrants. Uh, yes, immigrants are helpful for the economy. It's true, um, just as immigrants are helpful to the American economy, actually. Um, economies boom when there's substantial immigration. That's a, a fair generalization, actually. But uh, even though we have an economic need for more immigration, we're so scared on behalf of our culture that we want that to slow down. So that's a, that's a big uh, debate going on. You talk about the size of these countries, and of course, anytime there's talk in America about adopting any aspects of these Scandinavian models, as we've been talking about, one of the points that's raised repeatedly is that they just can't scale to the size of America. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> my biggest lesson about that, because that was usually on my mind as well as writing this book, like what about the scale? Um, and and the, the, my funny introduction to that question over there was I was uh, about to interview a couple of senior researchers in uh, a think tank over there uh, in Oslo, actually, Oslo, Norway. And I saw on the wall a framed photograph of a bunch of people that looked Chinese. And they were staring out at the camera, standing next to these researchers I was about to interview. And I turned to the researchers and said, those folks look Chinese. And they said, yeah, yeah, they were a delegation of economists and policymakers sent from Beijing by the by the People's Republic government. And they were sent here to learn from Norway. Well, my jaw dropped open. I thought, whoa. Uh, China is so gigantic; it makes the United States look small, and it's uh, and it's also so heterogeneous culturally. China is that it makes us look homogeneous by comparison, and and China would send people to Norway, and uh, they saw the look on my face and they said, "Right, we wondered the same thing," and that was our first question to them: Why are you coming to Norway to learn from us? population 5 million. And the Chinese response was, when it comes to the economy, you have to be more specific. You can't be just general. There are some economic features and policies and structures that can be scaled up hugely. And there are others that cannot. And you have to look at each feature 
to ask yourself, will this scale up or not? So we've come to your country to look at some of the things that we think might be upscaled, you know, possible to scale up to our size, um, or maybe that we could implement on a provincial level within our country rather than on a national level. But we're, we're very flexible about that kind of thing. We don't think it's an all or nothing deal. And, you know, then on my way home, I got to thinking more about that, and I realized that Social Security, which is something we in the U.S. really count on, um, well, the, that it's the same system in, in Iceland, Social Security system. It works for 320,000 people, works for 330 million people in our country. It's definitely something that could be scaled up. Medicare which gets better ratings from people who use Medicare than private health insurance does. Medicare is something that is present in those countries over there, small countries, and is present and is actually getting tremendous ratings here. And although it's a bit stingy, it could be more generous. Um, but the system as a system works fine. So, uh, so I think the Chinese are right. Uh, that we should not be intimidated by difference in scale. We should just go for it. The Chinese are very eager to learn from other people's experience. We should be just as eager to learn from other people's experience. Of course, it does raise the other issue of diversity. Both uh, the Scandinavian countries and China, for that matter, are much more, as you say, homogeneous populations than the United States. Oh, Actually, China, I would say, is more diverse. Uh, I mean, they can't even swallow Tibet. Uh, culturally, it's it's just so big, but they're working at it. Um, they there are large numbers of Chinese who can't even speak to each other. Uh, so there's actually tremendous cultural diversity within China. Um, but the I th I think it's a fair question, which is um, w whether the homogeneity of the Scandinavians w gave them a leg up. And I think. Uh, it while it doesn't influence something like social security, people are happy to cash a check, <laughs> you know, no matter what their language or religious preference is. Um, the, the, with, with regard to getting there, how, how they came to build their system, homogeneity was helpful because it, for, it, it was easier to get the unity among the majority of people that was necessary in order to push the 1% out of control so that they could build a system that would really work for the majority. Um, and we obviously have trouble doing that. Our, our white-black uh, divisions and so on um, make it harder for us to understand that we, the majority, I, I identify myself with the majority of Americans, that we could unite, and if we united, then we could push the economic elite out of its dominance of our country, and we could establish um, a system like the Nordic model. Uh, so I, I think that it does matter. It means we do have to work harder to find the common ground that we have with Latinos, with Asians, uh, with, with uh, African Americans, and so on, so that we can understand the majority interest really is in pushing the 1% out from running the country all the time and instead asserting genuine democracy so that we could have a system that actually works for us. George Lakey, his book is Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. George, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you.